0: Today, we're going to be in Hosea chapter 9. So turn with me today to Hosea 9, and we'll be looking at verses 1 to 9 of Hosea 9. Hosea 9, 1 to 9. And as you get there, you know, the reality is that sin has consequences. Sin has consequences. It's a reality that is presented again and again in the scriptures, right? Sin has consequences. Uh, Every book of the Bible deals with this fundamental principle sin has consequences look to the book of revelation you see sin has consequences look in the book of genesis at the very beginning right as we get to chapter three at the fall of man sin has consequences and sometimes we see in the bible the the characters of the bible the the people uh, recorded in the words of scripture We see that these uh, sin, but they come to see their sin. They repent of it. And perhaps in some measure, disaster is averted. One of the great examples of that, of course, is the, the story we see in the book of Jonah, right? The city of Nineveh. They sin, they're in sin. They hear the message of Christ, the message of the gospel, Christ, not Christ, right? Because Jonah didn't know about Christ and Jonah was particularly angry about what happened. But they they hear the message, they repent, and God relents. Uh, again, much to the chagrin of Jonah, God relents. They take God's word seriously. Other times that we have characters in the Bible that are quite oblivious to their sin and its consequences. One of the great examples of that is the first king of Israel, King Saul. Right? He was oblivious to the consequences of his sin. Uh, he, time and again, disobeys the Lord and expects to be blessed for it, as though he did something good. Uh, one seminal moment like this takes place in 1 Samuel 15. And God's, at the outset of that chapter, God tells, tells Saul to go with the, the army and to destroy the Amalekites. Destroy them. Utterly destroy them. Don't take a thing from it. Destroy it all. Burn it to the ground. And what does Saul do? Well, he half obeys the Lord. And when Samuel is told to go and confront Saul, we have this kind of interaction. I just want to look at a part of it in 1 Samuel 15, verses 13 to 16. 1 Samuel 15, 13 to 16. And Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed be you to the Lord i have performed the commandment of the lord and samuel said what then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that i hear saul said they have brought them from the amalekites for the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the lord your god and the rest we have devoted to destruction then samuel said to saul stop I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night. And he said to him, speak. So when Saul greets Samuel, right, it's like, hey, buddy, it's so great to see you. Everything went well, just got back. Things are going great. And he boasts of obedience to the Lord. We've done what the Lord commanded. Except for they didn't do what the Lord commanded because the Lord commanded destruction of everything. And here there are, there's some sheep and there's some oxen. And Samuel knows this beforehand because God tells him beforehand. But God is not fooled. Samuel is not fooled. Saul was fooled into thinking God would bless him for his disobedience. He expected God's blessings for his disobedience. And as we come to the book of Hosea, this is what we find in the people of the northern kingdom of Israel during Hosea's day, they expected to be blessed for their disobedience, that because they sacrifice and because they're religious, God's going to take care of them. Today, I want us to see in our passage that disobedience to God results in disaster, not blessing. Disobedience to God results in disaster, not blessing. So let us read the scriptures this morning. Isaiah chapter 9, starting in verse 1. The word of the Lord says, Rejoice not, O Israel. Exult not like the peoples. For ye have played the whore, forsaking your God. You have loved a prostitute's wages on all threshing floors. Threshing floor and wine vat shall not feed them, and the new wine shall fail them. They shall not remain in the land of the Lord, but Ephraim shall return to Egypt, and they shall eat unclean food in Assyria. They shall not pour out drink offerings of wine to the Lord, and their sacrifices shall not please him. It shall be like mourners' bread to them. All who eat of it shall be defiled, for their bread shall be for their hunger only. It shall not come to the house of the Lord. What will you do on the day of the appointed festival, and on the day of the feast of the Lord? For behold, they are going away from destruction, but Egypt shall gather them. Memphis shall bury them. Nettles shall possess their precious things of silver. Thorns shall be in their tents. The days of punishment have come. The days of recompense have come. Israel shall know it. The prophet is a fool. The man of the spirit is mad because of your great iniquity and great hatred. The prophet is the watchman of Ephraim Ephraim with my God. Yet a fouler snare is on all his ways and hatred in the house of his God. They have deeply corrupted themselves as in the days of Gibeah. He will remember their iniquity. He will punish their sins. And this is the word of the Lord. So in the book of Hosea, we have different kinds of oracles and the two main types, right, are oracles of judgment and oracles of restoration or or oracles of future hope. However, God, as we've gone through these passages recently, right, we, we really haven't seen much in the way of oracles of hope. It's been a lot of oracles of judgment and we maybe struggle, struggle to deal with these words of judgment, but understand this, that the purpose of God is to get The attention of his people the purpose of God is that they would know the truth the truth of what they're doing he's a holy God and he cannot stand sin R.C. Sproul called sin cosmic treason and that's what it is it is treasonous activity against our holy God our creator God demands and deserves our obedience. Uh, Last week, when we looked in Hosea, I mentioned that one of the things that the, the worship, the Canaanite worship, the Canaanite religion was concerned with was coercing the gods to do what you want them to do. And so you offer sacrifices, you cut yourself, you sacrifice your child you do whatever you can to get the god's attention and then force them to do what you want them to do if you entreated them enough the harvest would be good the people would be fertile and have many children And the people of Israel in Hosea's day think this way. They have adopted the practices of the Canaanite religion. They think if we sacrifice enough, if we do enough, we'll coerce God into doing what we want. If we perform the incantation correctly, if we offer the right sacrifices, then we must have a good harvest. They would have to be blessed. In our own day, when we downplay the reality of sin, we downplay the consequences of sin, but the scriptures don't. In our day, we likewise think that if we say the right things, if we do enough religious good acts, then God will be induced to bless us. So we need to hear this oracle of judgment and we need to realize that in some ways we may be in the place of the people of Israel and Hosea's day. We need to hear this oracle of judgment, not because this is what's going to happen to us if we don't. It's not as though this is the exact pattern that we should uh, be concerned with, but because the principle remains the same. Disobedience to God results in disaster, not blessing. So let's take up our passage. And first, I want to see in verses 1 through 2, Thou shalt not harvest. Thou shalt not harvest in verses 1 and 2. And the oracle begins, rejoice not. It seems like Hosea is maybe delivering this sermon because that's what the book of Hosea is kind of structured like. It's a series of sermons and maybe they were written first and then um, given orally or maybe they were given orally first and then they were uh, transcribed down to pass along. Either way, he's delivering the sermon. It seems like it's during the time of the harvest, right? Because we have a lot of uh, harvest metaphors at work here. And the harvest would typically be a time for rejoicing, right? This is a time when we rejoice about the abundance that we have, about uh, the good that we have for the coming season, the coming winter, the, the coming uh, year. And indeed, the people were commanded under the law. If we go back to the Old Testament law, right, they were commanded to feast during times at certain points during the harvest, Uh, right? You have two particular feasts I want to note is the Feast of the Weeks, which happens early on, and the Feast of Booths. And in God's instruction about these feasts, they were told, rejoice, right? So these were feasts. These were festivals. They were times of rejoicing. Uh, For instance, uh, the Feast of the Booths, God gives this instruction in Deuteronomy 16, Deuteronomy 16, which you see both feasts mentioned there, and they both have similar uh, language here. Deuteronomy 16, verses 14 and 15. God says, you shall rejoice in your feast. You and your son and your daughter, your male servant and your female servant, the Levite, the sojourner, the fatherless and the widow who are within your towns. For seven days you shall keep the feast of the Lord your God at the place that the Lord will choose Because the Lord your God will bless you in all your produce and in all the work of your hands so that you will be altogether joyful. Right? So rejoice. Harvest is a time of rejoicing in what the Lord is doing and what the Lord is blessing. And here we see the reverse of that in Hosea, right? He says, don't rejoice, Israel. Don't exult, like the peoples. The language here in the original may mean something like don't work yourself into a joyful frenzy. And we have to realize why does Hosea say this to the people? Right? We're given that reason. For you have played the whore forsaking your God. You've acted like a prostitute. They are working themselves into a joyful frenzy like all the other nations. Rather than the harvest being a time of thanksgiving to the Lord God, they use it to worship and celebrate the false gods. They think that they are heard and seen. Well, God has already told them that, yes, he has heard and he has seen, but not in the way they think. Hosea 8.13, As for my sacrificial offerings, they sacrifice me and eat it, But the Lord does not accept them. Now he will remember their iniquity and punish their sins. They shall return to Egypt. We've talked about before in the book of Hosea how it is very much like when they offer sacrifices, when they do these religious acts, it does get God's attention, but not for good. Because God says, Oh, yeah, I remember your iniquity. You remind me every time you sacrifice how evil you are, how wicked you are, how unfaithful you've been to my covenant. Thanks for reminding me. Now let me do something about it. God sees and remembers and is moved to punish them, and they have no reason to rejoice. Right? Why does he tell why does Hosea say, Rejoice not? Why does God say, Rejoice not? Because they have no reason to rejoice. They have played the prostitute. Also, we ought to pause here for a moment and note that this is the last time we see this prostitute metaphor used by Hosea in this way. Uh, It's been a feature uh, so far in the book. We see it many times. And just because he ceases to use it, we should note that that doesn't mean that they've ceased to act in that manner. The last part of verse one here says you have loved a prostitute wages on all the threshing floors. And the threshing floor is a place where the grain would be beat out to separate the wheat from the chaff to get the actual good stuff away from the stuff that just needs to be burnt up. And the threshing floor was generally a level place. So you're not going to find it in the rocky crags. You want a level place to do this. And further, because it was a level place and was typically an open place, it made for a great gathering spot. People would come for religious festivals. They come and gather together. And the sense is that uh, you have loved to prostitute wages on all the threshing floors. The sense is that when they brought the bounty, whatever they harvested to the threshing floor, they rejoiced in the work. Of the false gods, they didn't rejoice in God's giving them these gifts, right? God blessing them. They said, "Here are the blessings of our lovers." And this is—we know this is what they—they they thought. Hosea two twelve, Hosea two twelve, and I will lay waste her vines and fig trees. Of which they said, and listen to this: This is what God God said is coming from their lips. These are my wages which my lovers have given me. I will make them a force and the beasts of the field shall devour them. Right so so they wrongly attribute the people wrongly attribute the bounty they bring to the threshing floor as coming from their lovers. Right the Baal's the Asherah the false gods. And God says I'm going to take it back. We go to verse 2 and it says the Threshing floor and wine vat shall not feed them, right? They will enjoy no produce. The wine vat, this was a place where they would uh, put, it was a kind of container constructed. Uh, they would put the grapes in it and then they would crush them, stomp on them. Uh, if you've ever seen the old I Love Lucy episode where I Love Lucy has to stomp on the grapes and, you know, it always goes wacky wild because Lucy can't do anything, right? Right? uh that that that's that kind of idea the the grapes would be stomped on then there would be uh, some kind of spout coming out of that container into other containers to actually collect uh, what is good and god says here not going to feed them the juice would be nothing the new wine will fail them the crops will fail The things that the people were celebrating the false gods for would be shown to be like their false gods. Nothing. They will go to the threshing floor and find not. They will go up to the wine press and find only dead bramble and dried up fruit. Not the good kind either, right? Withered fruit, rotten fruit. The people are deceived. They will not harvest what they think they will harvest. And God has been merciful thus far because He has provided something to them. He has blessed them in some sense because the people have been eating, they have been drinking. But His blessings will be removed. Again, He will do what He has promised. Go back to Hosea 2 8 and 9. Hosea 2 8 and 9. And she did not know, and she did not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the wine, and the oil and who lavished on her silver and gold, which they used for ball. Therefore, I will take back my grain in its time, and my wine in its season. I will take away my wool and my flax, which would cover her nakedness. Their disobedience will lead to disaster, not blessing. They need to hear the words of James in James chapter 4, verses 9 and 10. James chapter 4, 9 and 10. Be wretched, be wretched, and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. James there is addressing, the Apostle James is addressing the proud carnal men who think that they can go to God and get whatever they want. That they just pray to God, God's going to give it to them. They think that God will answer them for their unfaithfulness, but they fail to understand the ways of the Lord God. Rather than rejoice, they need to weep, James says. Rather than be proud, they need to humbly seek the Lord their God. And some of you today need to hear the words of Jane. Some of you need to heed the words of Hosea. You live your life celebrating and rejoicing. You exult like the nations. But here's the fundamental question. Is God actually pleased with you? Is the Lord God, your creator, rejoicing with you? Hebrews eleven six tells us, Hebrews eleven six. 6, and without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Or we could look at Paul's admonition to the church in Rome when dealing with the issue of food. He says, anything that does not proceed from faith is sin. So let me ask the question, then, do you have faith in God? Do you believe in the God of the scriptures? And understand that that, that is a distinction we need to make. Because the problem is the, of the Israelites was not that they didn't believe in God in a sense. They did believe in God in a sense. They followed after his law in a sense. Right? They knew something about festivals and sacrifices and so that's what they did. But they also co-opted God And added in all sorts of other things and created their own amalgamation. They did believe in God and in many gods. And they thought that they would be blessed for their pluralistic lifestyle. We're welcoming of all. The issue in our own day is that there are many who say they believe in God, but they don't heed God's word, And they slot Jesus Christ next to Muhammad or Buddha And say, well, they're all important spiritual men. And certainly there are many who strip out of the Bible the things that offend them, that offend their sensibilities, that offend their sins. And they decoupage their own version of God, they paper mache a Jesus together out of pieces of the Bible not seeking the Jesus in the Bible. How many churches there are that take Jesus and twist his words to suit their own lifestyles? And there are churches that are rejoicing today. And think about that. Even right now as we meet, they are rejoicing and celebrating and instead they should be weeping. They should be wretched and mourn and weep because God is ready to visit upon them and their life disaster, not blessing. And we must pray, O oh God, have mercy on us. Have mercy on us, O oh God, that we not be them, that we not be like the people of Israel in Hosea's day. So what shall the people receive? Well, not thou shall not harvest. God says, You're not going to harvest. You think so? You're not. And let's see next, thou shalt not remain. And verse 3, thou shalt not remain. And the scripture reads, they shall not remain in the land of the Lord. We've seen some hints so far in the book of Hosea that exile is coming. Sometimes it's just a hint, right? It's just something intimated in the text, something, uh, just a little taste of, hmm, I wonder if that's talking about exile. But now we have a clear declaration there is no question of clarity here god is saying you're gone you're going to be removed from the land they'll go off to egypt they'll be carried off to assyria they will be scattered and they're but they're certainly not going to remain in the land and think about what exile means what does exile mean well the first thing is they they're not going to be a distinct people anymore right right now In Hosea's day, you could look across the land and say, yeah, they're Israelites. We can see them. When they're scattered to the nations, it's going to be hard to tell them apart. They will be homeless. They won't have a distinct culture. That was one of the things that should have been notable about the people of Israel, that they had a distinct culture, that they were set apart, that you could really tell that's an israelite but now they're going to be carried off in exile and they're going to be absorbed into whatever culture they find themselves in and we see one other aspect of that here in this text in verse 3 at the end of verse 3 they shall eat unclean food in assyria they're not going to be able to keep themselves clean right they're going to be ritually defiled over and over and over again because they're living in a defiled land And on this last one, right, they won't really have a choice. They're going to be forced by their circumstances. We actually have an example of this problem in the person of Daniel, right, much later. But Daniel and his friends are carried away to Babylon. The king decides, I'm going to take some of the youths from the noble lines, from the royal family. I'm going to take these youths. And what am I going to do with them? I'm going to mold them into good Babylonians. I'm going to make them good Babylonians. And part of that includes a feeding regimen. Let it, let's let get them used to our food, our drink, the expectations when they go to dinner, which fork to eat with first. And Daniel knew that this would not be kosher. Daniel 1, verses 8 and 9. L- listen to this, right? This is, this is the reality for the people of Israel that when they're carried off, this is what they're going to be dealing with. Daniel 1, 8 and, 8 and 9. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. So what's interesting here is, right, Daniel has faith. Daniel understands the situation he is. He understands he's in a foreign land, an unclean land, a defiled people. And he says, but I really don't want to be defiled. I don't want to be defiled by the king's food. Please, please let me not be defiled. God has mercy on him and gives him compassion in the eyes of the chief of the eunuchs who says, Okay, I I mean, I really have to show that you are healthy and well, so we'll try your way for a little bit, but if it looks like you're a little scrawny sickling, uh, we're going to have to switch over to the king's food real quick because it's my life on the line. But as we know the story goes, God blesses him, and and God does uh, give him health and wisdom and so much more above his stature, above the rest of the people. This is God's doing. But think of how many in the land of the Babylonians, when we get there, in the land of the Assyrians, in the land of the Egyptians, don't have that option. They don't have the ability to ask, uh, can you give me some clean food, some kosher food? No, they just have to eat whatever's presented before them. They don't have money for it. They don't have wealth for it. They don't have ability for it. They don't have anyone to ask It's eat it or die. The people will be unclean. The people of Israel were going to understand what God meant when he said, you are not my people and I'm not your God. Because it would, that's what, that's what exile was going to do to them. They would no longer be his people. They would be indistinct and muddled with the rest. So God says to them, thou shalt not remain. And he also tells them, thou shalt not sacrifice. Look at verse 4. Thou shalt not sacrifice. And he says, they shall not pour drink offerings of wine to the Lord. Right? And this is, again, part of what's carrying on when we see what, what is the result of exile? The loss of ability. The loss of ability to worship God in the ways that they were used to worshiping God. They won't have a place of worship legitimate or illegitimate to go to. They're not going to pour out wine offerings. And more than that, right? He says their sacrifices shall not please him. And and this probably relates to animal sacrifices more than it's talking back about the wine offerings. So we see drink offerings. They're gone. And now we see animal sacrifices. They're not going to please him. Remember, that God has standards when it comes to the offering of animals. The people in Malachi's day, as the people come back into the land much, much later, they forget this. In Malachi eight, God confronts them. Malachi eight, They thought that they could get away with offering whatever was left, whatever they had, uh, whatever was left. Uh, Maybe a little substandard that they couldn't sell, that they couldn't use. Malachi one eight. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? Right. God uses this strategy of asking rhetorical questions. And he says, "Okay, if you took those sacrifices that you're offering to me, to your governor, do you think he's going to be like, oh, thank you so much. The best. I always wanted a cow, an oxen with mad cow disease. I always wanted to see its face uh, disintegrate and fall apart. I always wanted a little lamb that was so riddled with cancer just to look upon it was to make you gag a little. That's what I wanted. Would a governor, would an earthly governor be satisfied with that? What in the world makes you think that the Lord God of heaven is pleased with such a sacrifice? Is not the Lord God worthy of much more glory than a governor? And brothers and sisters in Christ, let me pause here to say we would do well to realize that God is not pleased with our leftovers. The Christian walk is not about fitting Jesus into the margins of our lives. Now, Let me explain that a little bit more. What do I mean by that? Sometimes we get this idea that right, we put in work details, family details, uh, right, personal, I-, I need me time. And then, oh, yeah, I guess I should probably, you know, read my Bible for five minutes. Let me slot that in there right before I go to bed where I know that I'll be so tired. I won't even I'll look at the page and it'll just I'll, my eyes glaze over immediately. God's not satisfied with fitting Jesus. Christian walk isn't about fitting Jesus into the margins of our lives, because if that's your approach, you've misunderstood what God requires of you, one, but what you should be willing to give, two. You've misunderstood love. You've misunderstood the words of Christ Jesus when he says, take up your cross and follow me. He who does not hate mother and father and, and brother and sister and wife and husband, son and daughter, is not worthy of following after me. You've got your priorities misplaced, and I'd say consider that. God's not going to be gonna satisfied with the sacrifices of these Israelites. Because what are they going to have? If they're carted off to exile, if the, if the land is in drought and famine, what does that do to the animals? Right? We have to remember drought and famine affects more than just people. It affects the animals too. God's not going to be pleased with their sacrifices. He goes on to say, and even the grain offerings, right? The, the mourners, it will be like mourners' bread to them. All who eat of it shall be defiled, for their bread shall be for their own souls, They'll, for their hunger alone. And the idea here is, right, that the grain is so, uh, so, there's just not any of it. There's not enough of it. The grain's going to be so little. Not only that, if they're in an unclean land, what's that do to the bread? What's that do to the grain? The grain's unclean. All this to say, right, is that there will be no fit bread to place before God, right? They were told to give grain offerings. They're not going to be able to do that. Uh, we could also think, remember that when the people worshiped God in the temple, that they would make loaves of bread and put it before God, the show bread, Right? It's gone. Drink offerings gone. Animal sacrifices stopped. Grain offerings unfit. The people have rejoiced and worshipped on every hill and under every green tree. And now they will have nothing but mourning and deprivation. They shall not sacrifice. Let's look at verses 5 and 6 and see thou shall not feast. Thou shall not feast in verses 5 and 6. What will you do? What will you do on the day of the appointed festival and on the day of the feast of the Lord? What will they do at the time of the feast? Well, what has God already told them they won't be doing? Well, they're not going to harvest anything. They're not going to have sacrifices. So what do you do when you go to a festival that's about harvest and sacrifice? stand around I guess and pick your nose I mean what else do you do what else can you do they shall not feast they there'll be no rejoicing it's not going to be celebration and this particular feast that seems to be uh, that Hosea is attacking is is one that there was a legitimate component of that in Jerusalem but like we remember our good friend Jeroboam the first Jeroboam the son of Nebat he set up a rival feast because he didn't want the people going back to Jerusalem and we see that in 1 Kings 12, 32. 1 Kings twelve thirty two, And Jeroboam appointed a feast on the 15th day of the eighth month, like the feast that was in Judah. And he offered sacrifices on the altar. So he did in Bethel, sacrificing to the calves that he made, golden calves, right? And he placed in Bethel the priests of the high places that he made. And let me just pause here and as an aside say, if you go back through and you read the book of Kings and Chronicles, and you see this kind of phrase over and over again, that the people raised to the sin of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, that they didn't escape Jeroboam, the son of Nebat's sin. Like you see this reference back to him over and over again. And we have to understand that's because he was fundamentally at fault for leading the people in this direction. Right. He is the first king of the northern tribes. And what is the first thing that he does set up golden calves, create rival feasts. He does everything in order to deflect attention away from the Lord God and bolster up this false worship. So, in other words, the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat are really bad. Don't be Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. Right. That's that's the. That's the reality that the scripture is trying to get into our heads. So again, though, going back to our passage here in Hosea, what, what will they do on the day of the appointed festival and on the day of the feast? Nothing. And we've actually, again, seen this promise before in Hosea chapter 2. All right. So Hosea chapter 2 is really important for this chapter, for this passage. Hosea chapter 2, verse 11 God says to the people, and I will put an end to all her mirth, her feasts, her new moons, her Sabbaths, and all her appointed feasts. God says, I'm doing away with the festivals. You think you worship me through them? You don't. You worship the false gods. You think the false gods are going to save you from this? They're not. I'm removing them. And how will God do this? Well, again, he's going to take them off into exile. And verse six tells us, for behold, they're going away from destruction um it it's a strange phrase. It means something like they are going away from destruction. That destruction is in the land of Israel, so what do you do when destruction is in the land where you live? You go away from it. Uh you you escape from it, you go from it. And where will they go? Well they'll go to Egypt. They'll be refugees in Egypt. And what will they do in Egypt? die just a real nice hallmark colored way of saying welcome to egypt you come to die here right like that's a good you should try that now they go to memphis and what is memphis is is a uh, city in egypt and what's it known for death tombs graves uh the most notable of which in in a nearby area of memphis is the pyramids which are what giant graves, giant monuments to death You're going to go to Memphis, where you will be buried. Again, we have some difficult language here in the Hebrew and and some question about what it really means. And um, I'm going to follow one commentator's suggestion that this issue about uh, nettles shall possess their precious things of silver is probably linked back to this, uh, to the city of Memphis, to to that place. And it's something like this. What are they going to do with their precious things of silver? They're going to go buy themselves a tomb. They're going to go buy themselves a grave. They're going to take their little change purse full of silver. They're going to go down to Memphis, not to start a new life, but to bury themselves. And we kind of have an ironic twist in this too, because what did the people of Egypt in the Exodus carry away from Egypt? Or what did the people of Israel carry away from Egypt? gold and silver right remember they plundered the people and in an ironic twist what are they doing taking back gold and silver to the people of egypt they're unplundering the people of egypt the israelites are taking back what they once took and then we have again this this other phrase thorns shall be in their tents and we ask why what does that mean if you have a thorn in your tent. Uh, you probably want to clear that out, and you would if you were alive. But the idea, the picture here is, what happens to the tents of people who are dead? They get overgrown. right? We see that in houses in our own day. right? What happens when the person who was responsible for upkeeping the farmhouse dies, and none of the children want to care for the land, and they're off in their other places? What happens to that farmhouse? It falls in. It gets grown over. Thorns are in their tents. and That's what it's going to be for the people. Their their tabernacles, their tents will be places of thorns. Hosea calls the people to consider what terrors await them. And now let's turn to the last three verses of our passage today and find the truth summed up in this. Thou shalt be repaid for sin. Thou shalt be repaid for sin. Verses 7 through 9. And in case we missed it, in case we misunderstood everything that, that has been said thus far, here again we have this simple, direct statement. The days of punishment have come, or the days of visitation have come. The days of recompense have come. The days of repayment have come. Disobedience to God results in disaster, not blessing. That's the point. And this is God making that point clear, right? That for all their religion, all their worship, all their sacrifices, that they they thought they would be blessed by those things, but God says not. Their religion, their sacrifices, their worship were all sinful, right? They suffered a fundamental misunderstanding. They failed to understand who they were to worship. They did not know God. And now they would receive the wages of their sin. And understand this. You may think that God will ignore your sin. You may think that you're a special case. And that God will have a special dispensation for you in your sin. He's very understanding. He understands that you just have to sin in a certain way. You may think that judgment is not coming, despite what the scriptures say. But understand this, God will repay. Judgment is coming. He will justly judge you. You would do well to heed the words of the apostle Peter. Turn there with me to Second Peter chapter three. Second Peter chapter three. Second Peter. Junior your Bibles, is right after 1 Peter. Uh, 2 Peter, which is right after Hebrews. So if you get to Hebrews, keep going a little bit. If you hit the book of Revelation, you've gone too far, pump on the brakes, do 180, make a U-turn, as the GPS would say, right? 2 Peter chapter 3. And I want us to to see this because we may think that God is going to ignore our sin, that that things continue as they were, that look at me, look at me today. I'm I'm a sinner. I'm sinful. uh, I don't repent. I don't care about God. But look, I'm healthy. I'm whole. I have a good family. I have so many children. I have money. Everything's going great. But notice what the Word of God says. 2 Peter 3, this is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. All right, so who's Peter writing to? He's writing to the church. He wants to remind the church something, right? In both of them, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires, Let's pause and just say, do we see scoffers scoffing in our day? And what do they say? What what is it that they will say? They will say, verse 4 of 2 Peter 3, Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. So what are the scoffers saying? Things are going nice. Things continue. America's been going for 200 plus years. Things continue. Where is his coming? Jesus said, I'm going to be back soon. Right? The apostle Paul, he seemed to think, well, Jesus was right around the corner. And look, he's dead and buried 2,000 years. Ever since the fathers died, guess what? World's still going. How many people have predicted the end times? How many generations have said, Jesus is surely coming back this in my lifetime? By the way, don't we say that of ourselves? Jesus is coming back. The signs are there. Nah, you're crazy. Where's the promise of his coming? Since the fathers fell asleep, things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. The sun rises, the sun sets. The moon rises, the moon sets. The stars go in their circuits, the planets in their circuits, the sun's there, the earth's here. Things continue. Verse 5. For they deliberately overlooked this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. What does Peter say? He says, remember that judgment is coming. There were people in Noah's day who kept on going. who said, what do I need to repent of? Things keep going. Ever since the fathers fell asleep, fathers died long ago, Look, the world keeps going until the deluge killed them until in the midst of their party at the door comes a knock and it's a flood and they die and are carried away. They thought that the gods were well pleased with them, and so might the gods be. But the Lord God, the one true and living God, was not and is not. The floods came upon them, and they perished. And someday soon, Peter says, fire is coming. The day of visitation is coming. And the question is, are you ready for it? The only way to be saved from the coming fire is through faith in the Son of God through faith in Jesus. It is only by trusting in Christ Jesus, believing in his sinless life, his atoning death on the cross, and his glorious resurrection from the grave, that you will be able to stand in that day of judgment, stand in the midst of the fire. Paul writes to the Ephesians, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So to you the message is, Believe in Christ Jesus this day. Repent of your sins. Turn from the evil that you're doing and turn to God. And if you do, you'll find forgiveness of your sins. How are you forgiven? By God. By Christ's work on the cross. Jesus paid the penalty of your sins. Don't be like the Israelites in Hosea's day who suffered the punishment of their sins, right? God told them. Go back to Hosea. Right? What did God tell them? Hosea 9, 7. The days of punishment have come. The days of recomp- recompense have come. Israel shall know it. Don't be like the Israelites. Don't be like those of old who failed to understand the ways of God. Do not think like those in our own day who believe that God blesses sin. They don't use those terms, by the way. Right? They don't say, say it in so many words. But they do say, listen, I can have God loves. God loves me. It doesn't matter what I do. God loves me. God does love his people. And in one sense, it doesn't matter what his people do, because God does love them. He has purpose redemption for them. And there is abundant grace in Christ where where sin abounds, grace abounds more. But as we should take the message from the book of Romans, right? Should we sin so grace may abound? May it never be. God forbid that. Put your faith in Jesus. Not in the false gods of this world. And what did Israel do and said? Verse 7 tells us. uh, And and the last part of this verse, the the second half is, is probably something of a mocking retort that the people gave. The prophet is a fool. The man of the spirit is mad, right? That they started saying these, Hosea, you're you're crazy, Hosea, you've you've lost touch with reality. Have you been in the new wine a little too much? Like you know, that's what they said. The same thing, by the way, that's what the people on the day of Pentecost said of the the uh, disciples, right? These people are crazy, they they're drunk. The man of the spirit is mad, Hosea says, because of your great iniquity and great hatred. You think that the prophet is a lunatic. Well, he is because of you. You've driven him to it. You've driven the man of God mad because of your great iniquity and great hatred. You think. The prophets there banging his head on the wall because it's like these people are so stupid. They just don't listen. They don't get it. They're blind. They're dumb. Why can't they see and understand? Your sin has driven the sane mad, Isaiah says. Verse 8, we have some different misunderstandings of this verse and one commentator understands this kind of as a question at the at the outset right is is Ephraim a watchman? Uh, In other words, is is God's are God's people a prophet? And the answer would have to be decidedly no, because if they were a prophet, they would understand what was going on and amend their ways. Right. If they were a prophet, they'd understand God's word and stop doing what they're doing. It's clear that they're not. Instead, what is coming to them? Snare, animosity, hatred. We could also understand this verse to mean something like that there is a watchman with God, right? And a a watchman is a prophet. We could go to the book of Ezekiel, for instance, and see where uh, God calls Ezekiel a watchman. And he has a duty to perform as watchman, to to warn the people of their sins. And that the prophet is actually a snare on their ways. And, And what we understand by that is, right, the prophet tells the truth about the people. And so the people have no excuse. The people know what sin is. And so they're caught in a snare. Because they can't claim ignorance. They can't claim, I didn't know that that was a sin. No, the prophet is a snare to them because he tells the truth and they're caught in the truth. And they have no, no excuse. They have no argument to make before God. There is no escape from the punishment to come. Verse 9 says they have deeply corrupted themselves. And This idea is that they are deep in depravity. And what kind of depravity is it? Well, it's as in the days of Gibeah. And we don't have time this morning to go to uh, that reference and fully unpack it. So I'll give you some homework. Read Judges 19 and the uh, chapters following that. But Judges 19 sets us up with the whole of the story. And there in that instance, we have the people of Benjamin acting wickedly. And what happens is a Levite is passing through with his concubine. And you might remember this uh, story from your studies of the book of Judges. But a Levite's passing through with his concubine. And as they're going through, it's getting late at night. And the concubine says, let's stop in this town. And the Levite's like, nah, this is a foreign town. We don't want to stop here. There's a Benjamite town just just a little bit further. We're going to go to the Benjamite town. Stop there. They get to the Benjamite town. Uh, They're in the kind of city square. Uh, Nobody's really talking to them. Nobody's being hospitable. Nobody's inviting them into their house. And this was something that was basically a mandate. It was a command of God, but it was also just basic cultural manners. Right, If someone's traveling through, they don't have hotels, they don't have motels. All right, Motel 6 is not leaving the light on because they don't have lights and they don't have motel 6s. So he's moving through, and finally someone comes up to him and says, Hey, uh, you can stay at my place tonight. You can come in, and I'm going to invite you and your concubine in. And they, they do, and this man is very gracious to him and hosts him. But then as night falls, the men of, ben, of this Benjamite town gather together, Knock on the door and say, send out the Levite that we may know him. And that's euphemism for send out the Benjamite that we may uh, let our lust out on this man. We want to have sex with him. We want to rape him. And after some cajoling and back and forth, the concubine instead gets sent out. And the men of this town are so brutal towards, towards her. So mistreat her and rape her. To such a degree that in the morning when they wake up and as they look out, there's the concubine on the front doorstep and she's dead. She's been brutalized and is dead. And the Levite takes her body. Uh, What seems more brutal to us is he cuts the body into pieces and sends it to all of the tribes and say, if you don't show up and do something about this, what happened to the concubine is going to happen to you. You're going to be torn up. And so the the tribes gather. They destroy this town. They they kill the men in this town, and it becomes a, a question of okay, now what are we going to do about the tribe of Benjamin? How are they going to how are they going to further themselves? Right, they're, they're cut off. So some things are contrived to make that happen. Right? What's the point? They are depraved. Hosea writes. He speaks. God speaks of the of the day in which hosea lives they are as depraved as in the days of gibeah you thought that story was bad you should be here today god says he will remember their iniquity he will punish their sins We could say it this way, that Israel's sin is so great. What else can God do but punish them? The people expected blessings from God for all their worship, but their worship was sin. And sin must be repaid. Disobedience to God results in disaster, not blessing. And it's a core principle that the people neglected to understand. And even the ones that they could have heard this truth from. Right? They could have listened to Hosea. But instead, what did they do? Hosea, you're a fool. You're mad. You're a lunatic. You're, you're not moved by the Spirit of God. You're moved by the Spirit of the devil to speak such things. They called good evil and evil good. And woe to any who would do such a thing. We would do well to remember this formula. Unrepentant sin... Plus false religion equals disaster Unrepented sin plus false religion equals disaster the people thought it different there are those in our own day that think that god will accept them because they've done some good things Right. They think that all that God requires of them is that they show up to church on occasion, that they've said a sinner's prayer at some point in their life. They recited some magical incantation. They have shook a preacher's hand. They've dunked in the water, whatever it is they think uh, that that has uh, cleared them for heaven. And so now they're on their way and it doesn't matter what they do in the meantime. God is not fooled and he will not be appeased by a empty religion. God does not want half obedience like the kind offered by King Saul that we opened up with. God does not want the kind of religion that says that evil is good. God is not pleased or appeased by such things. And all who fail to follow Christ, not just in word, and understand that, right? So what what we're talking about, what we're dealing with, is we're not just saying that we need to profess Jesus as Savior, But when we talk about following after Christ, we're talking about really living as Christ lived. And all who fail to do that will perish. The day of judgment is coming and fire will destroy this world and its ways. And listen, following after Jesus, living as Jesus lived, is not about us earning our salvation. You do not do good works to be saved You cannot do enough good works to be saved. And indeed, the scripture tells us that the good works that you do are merely what is expected of you. And why should you be given a treat when you've done merely your duty? But if you've understood the love of God for you, there is a sense in which you cannot help but to return that love with obedience. That the love of God creates within you the desire to do good. Listen to this pattern in the words of the Apostle John in 1 John 4, 10 through 11. 1 John 4, 10 and 11. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. This is love. God loved us. We didn't love God, but he loved us. And what did he do? He sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And that word propitiation, it means something like a wrath bearing sacrifice. Christ bore the wrath of God as a sacrifice for our sins. And if God loved us in such a manner, what does that mean for us? Well, it means we should love one another, right? It means that we should love our brother and loving our brother is more than just loving in word, just saying, Hey, I'd love you, brother. It's loving indeed. When he is in need, we meet that need and so believe in christ jesus this day and be safe from the coming judgment you can have the forgiveness of your sins and it's found in jesus alone and brothers and sisters in christ we need to understand these words of hosea for ourselves in our own day first we should not expect any blessings from god if we are living in unrepented sin what will god do to his people who are living in sin he'll discipline them And by the way, if you're living in sin and not being disciplined for living in sin, that should give you pause, the book of Hebrews tells us. It means that you're not a son or daughter of God. He will make you suffer many things to get you to understand the reality of your sin. That's the first thing we need to understand. The second thing, brothers and sisters, we have a message of reconciliation and a duty to take that message to a world that needs to be reconciled to God. The day of visitation is coming. The day of punishment, the day of recompense, the day of judgment is coming. We know this. We should not be surprised when it happens. It'll happen like a thief in the night, but we still shouldn't be surprised by it. Let's spend our days glorifying God by sharing the good news of Christ. That's our mission. Third, let us not be upset by those who call us fools for following after Christ, or speaking the truth. I'm sure Hosea was derided many times for the words that he spoke. We can expect the world to mock and hate us for believing in the scripture. That's not something that may happen. It will happen. Okay, understand? So be ready for that. When you follow after Christ, be ready to be mocked and hated for it. By the way, if Uh, some of the people in the world, some of the people in this own community, uh, some of the people who even profess Jesus Christ heard this message that I gave today. And I'm not saying I gave it well or whatnot, but I can tell you it probably would upset some of them. Why do I say that? Not because I'm something special, but because if anything of the word of God has convicted them, they, they're probably offended by it. They're offended by their own way of life. Hosea offended people. He did it in love. He spoke the truth in love. And let us do the same. And let us remember that vengeance is the Lord's. So when people hate us, let us love them. When people persecute us, let us pray for them. Let us bless those who hate us. And where does all this leave us? Well, for some, we need to heed the words at the start. Rejoice not. Right? Listen to the words of James. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Understand that sin leads to to disaster, not blessing. That's the result of sin. Disaster, not blessing. That's the consequences of sin. For some of us, we need to remain resolute in the truth of God's word. And we need to redeem the time for the days are evil. Uh, We need to pick up where, where Jude tells us, right? We need to fight the good fight. Contend for the faith. For all of us for every single one of us we need to repent of our sins and seek God in him alone let us pray our father in heaven we god we we are in need of you we need you every hour every moment uh, we need the work of christ we need your spirit to to help us to put to death the deeds of the body, Father, we need you because it is so easy for us to be lulled into this idea that it is a that that false religion, that this uh, hypocrisy, hypocritical religion, this this way of living life that just. Uh we live our own way and then kind of add on a, a Christian layer, a Christian tone to it. We we check a box that says, yes, I'm a Christian. And, and Father, we are satisfied with that when we know that you're not. We have every reason to know that you're not because we have your word. Father, forgive us. Uh, forgive us for thinking that you will bless us in our sinfulness. And God, we thank you so much for the work of Christ Jesus that redeems us from all lawlessness, that purifies us as a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. God, we thank you for the good in us because that good comes from you and it is not innate to us. We know, Father, that we are worse than the people of Israel in the days of Gibeah that our depravity is greater than that. But we also know the truth of your word, the work of Christ Jesus. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We know that Christ saved the, the chief of sinners, the apostle Paul. And if Christ could save one, such as he oh we know that he can save one such as i oh father help us to understand these things help us to see and to believe father we pray for for those who do not know you we pray that they would see and believe father that they would understand that judgment is coming that the day of visitation is coming That they would know, Lord God, that you are not pleased with sin. And oh that they would turn to you. Give us boldness, Lord, to preach that, to proclaim it. May you be glorified in us, O Lord God. May you be glorified in your people. And may we see your good, your goodness. Always. In the name of Jesus Christ, our only Lord and Savior, whom we pray does indeed come. Amen.